Welcome to the Biden Transition Podcast, the podcast that discusses how President Joe Biden and his new administration will tackle some of America's most pressing issues. For our fourth episode, we've invited Jack Jenkins, author and national reporter for the Religion News Service, to talk about the religious left, the religious right, and how Biden's faith will impact his presidency. How has Biden's faith guided his message of unity and healing? How are Biden's religious values different from those in the Trump administration? And what can we expect as a coalition of progressive faith leaders gain political sway? Those questions and more coming up next. Welcome to the Biden Transition Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle McLean, with today's guest, Jack Jenkins. Jack is a national reporter for Religion News Service and author of the book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Thanks so much for joining us, Jack. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Joe Biden has been really outspoken with his faith, and I know he attended church before the inauguration, and he has invoked his faith in speeches. What kind of message has he been sending? Yeah, this is an interesting question because, you know, on the one hand, Joe Biden talking about his faith in public is not at all new. It's been something that has kind of been part of his political persona for for decades now. But that doesn't mean he can't, you know, hone a message in a specific context, right? So the subtext, the subtitle of his campaign was the battle for the soul of the nation. And so in some ways, his campaign itself had these religious tinges to it, where he kind of talked about the nature of the country and this sort of battle for the soul, as it were. And over the course of his campaign, you know, he he invested pretty heavily in faith outreach in states like South Carolina. His campaign was actually the first to hire a state-specific faith outreach director in that state during the primaries, which paid off pretty well for him. It was the state that kind of saved his campaign. I remember I when I walked into a Biden office in South Carolina during the primary, there on the wall was a giant sign that said, Preacher's Heart, Joe Biden, right? So we're clearly, there is an element to which this has been something he's invested in as part of his campaign. But what was interesting is around the time of the Democratic Convention, we kind of saw a narrowing in terms of what that faith message might look like. And part of it was just touting Joe Biden as a person of faith. There was actually an entire section dedicated to the Democratic National Convention dedicated specifically to discussing um, Joe Biden's faith. Senator Chris Coons actually delivered a a short speech about it. And every single one of the um, keynote speakers, or at least virtually all of them, actually referenced Biden's faith in their address to the Democratic National Convention. And when Biden himself started speaking about faith, it kind of became this message of healing and conciliatory approach to faith, where faith is something that can be there for people in times of tragedy, which was a message that seemed to resonate pretty strongly in the context of a pandemic, right? So then, you know, fast forward a few months, you know, after Biden wins the election and we get to the inauguration, and he kind of pushed in really hard on that narrative during the, his inaugural events. You know, the, the first official inauguration event happened, you know, the day before, and that involved Cardinal Wilton Gregory, the Archbishop of Washington, a Catholic Archbishop, you know, helping lead this memorial service for those who had been killed as a result of COVID-19. Church bells rang in response to that. And when he lifted up COVID-19 victims during his speech, when Biden gave his speech during his inauguration the next day, he actually took a moment of prayer, of silent prayer, as he described it, 
to remember those who had been lost. And he also, of course, referenced faith in that speech and even went to church that morning and brought other people there with him. So it's kind of seeing faith as this conciliatory and unifying force. That's, of course, the message that he's been trying to send and to broadcast to others. Uh, And an important thing to remember, too, is that Biden has been really pushing, you know, he's pushing faith in the broad sense, in a general sense, and has referenced it in numerous speeches over the last few weeks and has continued to attend mass. But he also, you know, takes a specific Catholic flair on it. He's, He's a Catholic himself, and he, you know, often kind of will reference Catholic theologians like St. Augustine in his speeches. And didn't surprise many of us religion reporters that at the end of the day, on Inauguration Day, after there have been all these references to faith, when he sat down to the Resolute desk there sitting behind him among the photographs of his family was a photograph of him with Pope Francis. So I think you're going to see him continue to lean in on that part of his faith moving forward. You know, I think one of the big compare and contrast between him and Trump is he really sent a message of unity and he's been sending a message of unity and healing and compassion and, you know, love for your fellow American. And you see the contrast between him and Trump and Trump is very divisive. He's very combative, frankly, a bully, and he invokes faith as a way to attack Democrats. And how do you think that difference in the way he invoked his faith compared to the way Trump did. How do you think that resonated with the country? You're, you're kind of seeing two different presidents talk to two different constituencies, right? President Trump was very much someone who knew who his base was, right? And when he was running for office in 2016, um, and then after he was elected that year, Trump consistently appealed toward this base of primarily conservative Christians in general, and white evangelicals in particular as a group that he would often make overtures to. Trump was a Presbyterian. That's how he identified when he was running for president, and which is not necessarily an evangelical tradition or denomination, right? But what he would do in his campaign speeches, and even as president, was to refer to this sort of marriage of the American flag and the Bible, what is often described as Christian nationalism, this idea that America is or should be a Christian nation. And he that's, held the Bible up in front of the church right. for that photo op. Right. And, and that's less of a theology and more of an identity, as it were. And it often maps over um, on top of things such as anti-Muslim sentiment, white supremacy, anti-refugee sentiment. These are all mm-hmm. things that kind of are often underneath that umbrella of Christian nationalism. And then while discussing all of those things, Trump would often discuss Christian faith in particular and faith in general as if it were under attack, as if it were under fire. He did something we haven't seen a president do in a long time, which is that as a Republican, he won office. And usually that leads to internal power struggles among the religious right, where you'd see the powers that be all fighting for different parts of power. But the opposite happened under Trump. He managed to keep them feeling beleaguered throughout the course of his presidency, despite the access they had to power, in a way that kind of kept them cobbling closer and closer together. Even if I will note that the version of the religious right that emerged under Trump was peculiar, even among those of us who've watched it over the last few years, you know, it just seemed like it had a different tinge to it that was very engrossed in Christian nationalism. And that's, it strikes this hard contrast. And I should note that Trump, he did seem to be personally impacted by this. By the end of his presidency, he actually changed 
his religious affiliation. He went from saying he was Presbyterian to saying that he was a non-denominational Christian, which usually, not always, but usually maps pretty closely over um, saying that you are an evangelical Christian. And so Trump, when he was president, was consistently appealing to that community. Whereas Biden seems to be appealing not only to Catholics, as, as mentioned, he is a Catholic, but also to this broader understanding of religion and of faith. Because while white evangelical Protestants are discussed quite a bit in political circles, they are not even the largest religious group in the United States that would be Catholics. And they're wildly outnumbered by the other religious groups in this country who were, say, non-Christian, you know, Muslims, um, Jews, Hindus, Sikhs, um, as well as various other forms of Christianity. And so um, Biden seems to be appealing to what is ultimately a broader scope of people and hoping that that can maintain a more broad base, whereas Trump was really kind of leaning into a very specific subset that does turn out quite heavily on Election Day, but may not represent the largest subset of American people of faith. You know, that is a good point. It does seem like Biden is trying to evoke his faith to include people from different faiths and different denominations, but also different people that have been traditionally marginalized by religion itself. One of his first actions was repealing trans discrimination laws. Right. What is the motivation behind invoking faith in that way? This is an interesting thing that as religion reporters, we've seen for a while, but these dynamics that we've been watching for years haven't necessarily been captured by the average American as, as true. And let me explain that. You know, one thing that we've seen for quite some time is the shifting among um, religious Americans in general towards LGBTQ equality and right support. In fact, one of the communities that has been some of the most consistently supportive of, say, same-sex marriage um, has been uh, actually Catholics in general. Um, despite that that is in direct conflict with what the Catholic Church teaches, Catholics in the United States are one of the most supportive groups um, when it comes to same-sex marriage. Now, when you looked at the inaugural prayer service that happened the day after the inauguration, this tradition among presidents that last time under Trump, you know, it happens in the National Cathedral, included a lot of evangelical leaders who would go on to be some of his most stalwart supporters, the voices at that prayer service. Whereas the one that happened after the Biden administration, and my understanding is that the incoming administration has a lot of say and who who is leading the prayers at that service, although it is hosted by the Washington National Cathedral, the human rights campaign issued a statement saying it was the most LGBTQ inclusive inaugural prayer service ever and included the voices of transgender people of faith. And right in the early days of his, or um, a week and a day into his administration, he signed many of these executive orders pushing, for instance, for rights for transgender people or, you know, or, you know, removing Trump's ban on people in the military. And, um, and there were these articles saying he was burning bridges with conservative Christians and that, you know, you heard many conservative Christian commentators saying, oh, well, this is a blow against unity because he's not taking our perspective seriously. But what's interesting is that polling tells a different story. For instance, support for allowing transgender people to serve in the U.S. military is, according to recent polling from the Public Religion Research Institute, Every single major religious group, white mainline Protestants, black Protestants, white Catholics, Hispanic Catholics, and non-Christians all express broad majority support for that idea. There's only one group that doesn't express majority support for that, and that is white evangelical Protestants. And even white evangelical Protestants in that same poll, majority express support for laws that would protect LGBTQ people against discrimination in jobs, public accommodations, and housing. I mean, if anything, Biden seems to be pushing into laws that are more broadly supported, not just by the American public, but by people of faith in general. And so I think that that's 
one of the interesting dynamics that often gets lost when either the media or people in positions of power, whether it's Trump or others, only tell the story of, say, conservative Christians in the United States. It really does look like when you look at the broader corpus of people of faith in the United States, their theology looks significantly different than the one that got the loudest megaphone under Trump. I guess the headlines have been really dominated by that religious right that you were, you were mentioning. It seemed like they were the political force of the right for a long time. Now it seems like the political left, as you mentioned, is having a moment. You saw Raphael Warnock also winning his Senate election. He is, you know, the pastor at the same church that Martin Luther King attended. You have Joe Biden, who invoked his faith throughout the entire campaign and now into his presidency. What's going on here? What, what's, what's behind this moment for the religious left and how much of a force do you think it could be? This is a really great question. And, and the, the short answer is that there's a lot of different things converging into the same moment. You know, the religious left has existed throughout American history in various forms. The thing is, what the religious left is depends on what point of history you're looking at. And you know they, they actually were very active even underneath Obama, sometimes protesting and demonstrating against President Obama, sometimes protesting and demonstrating in, his, in support of things he was trying to get done. And many of these movements have been very crucial to Democrats for quite some time. Black Protestants in particular have been, in terms of um, showing up on election day, a very key constituency among um, Democrats for quite some time. But one thing that was interesting that happened after Trump was elected is that the religious left, which really is a menagerie of different religious groups you know, who might have overlapping agendas, but sometimes conflicting agendas and don't always work together in tandem. But when Trump was elected, what his policy proposals and his rhetoric railed against were things that so many of these faith groups held dear. And so it galvanized them in a very significant way throughout the Trump era um, to the point where many of the major demonstrations throughout the Trump administration um, were either partly or completely organized by members of the religious left. You know, for instance, the, the Women's March, one of the largest liberal demonstrations in, in American history. You know, one of the four co-chairs at that time was Linda Sarsour, who is controversial even within the left, but self-identifies as a member of the religious left and you know, did Muslim American advocacy long before she got involved in um, the Women's March. And then William Barber, who had already spoken at the 2016 Democratic National Convention and had already started to garner broad support because of his leadership of the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, this protest movement that is credited with at least partly helping unseat the Republican governor there in 2016, one of the bright points for Democrats that year. And Barber was helping lead these efforts to protest against the attempt by Republicans to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act under the Trump administration. So you saw these clergy traveling up to Washington, D.C. to get arrested during this time. By the way, one of the protesters who went up there and got arrested as part of these demonstrations was Raphael Warnock, to oh, give you an idea of how this comes full circle. And so you saw this movement, this faith rooted movement become very important as part of the broader resistance movement. This also extends to those who are fighting for refugees and those who are fighting against anti-Muslim sentiment and Islamophobia. You saw a lot of organizations form alliances between Muslim groups and Jewish groups and refugee-heavy churches. All these alliances really got formed to the point where the religious left became an unavoidably visible part of the broader left under Trump because they were so upfront when you know all these things were occurring to the point where it, when the insurrection happened um, just a couple of weeks ago 
here in Washington, D.C., you have to remember there were um, just just a month before several churches here in the District of Columbia had their signs, their Black Lives Matter signs torn down from their churches and in one case set on fire by Proud Boys, this right wing group that you know expresses support for Trump. And so the day of the insurrection, you actually had a group of local liberal leaning, generally speaking, clergy here in D.C. gathered in vigil around a Black Lives Matter sign as a protest against many of the people who were coming to DC who would later raid the US Capitol. And so, you know, the, the religious left has become this thing that is just, it, it was difficult to ignore as part of the larger left. And, you know, to go back to Biden again, he, his political <laughs> aspirations were in many ways saved by the turnout among Black Protestants in South Carolina during the primary and in the general election as well. And so combine that with the fact that many Democrats started becoming more comfortable being audibly religious in their political rhetoric. That hasn't always been the case. It's waxed and waned over the last few decades. But I think it's notable that Nancy Pelosi was very audibly um, religious, appealing to prayer during, say, the first impeachment trial, to the point where Trump said he didn't believe that she, she prayed for him. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, the representative from New York, she had gotten a Bible scripture fight, for lack of a better term, with Republicans during that same impeachment fight. And so all of that comes back to this particular moment, where now you have Biden, who has proudly claimed his religious identity, Warnock, who has proudly claimed his religious identity, and any number of other Democrats who have been more vocal about how their faith motivates them and how they have all been in conversation with prominent activists who were so important during the Trump era. And I'll just close on this, which I think was the most telling moment for me. Um, back in 2019, William Barber hosted an event in DC where he called on then you know, the Democratic slate of candidates to come for a presidential candidates forum. And um, nine candidates showed up and it should have oh. been 10, but Julian Castro missed his flight. Oh, wow. And that included Biden, that included Harris, that included Bernie Sanders, that included Elizabeth Warren. The headliners were all there. And they did that because they felt that that was an important constituency to be with. And there was an 11th candidate, Pete Buttigieg, who did not make that event, but he did make Barber's protest outside the White House a few days before, where he didn't even say anything. He just stood in the crowd and wanted to be near William Barber. And so that speaks a lot to how important this constituency has become, at least among activists, if not among primary voters. And now, since we've elected people like Raphael Warnock and Joe Biden to office, within the halls of power. So it seems like the religious left is just like a big umbrella of different denominations, just different people, different faiths, probably people with different ideologies as well with like some unifying factors. The religious right, you know, it seems like they have one set of rules that translate to like one set of policies. What are some of the unifying policies that the religious left might be pushing? This is an excellent question, and I think the, the truth is the answer will change depending on the month and the era. Um, and, I, you know, for a long time, the answer to that has been opposition to Donald Trump. And there does seem to be a lingering question as to how uniform the religious left will remain in absence of Donald Trump, right? The idea that if they achieve power, will they all agree with each other all the time anymore? And I, you know, many people argue that that would be unlikely that you'll actually see multiple different agendas emerge. And actually, religious left activists have told me, I was reporting on this um, a couple months ago, that they stand at the ready to demonstrate against Joe Biden should they need to. And that includes William Barber, who told me that. Oh, wow. But 
they say that because they do tend to have general overlaps. There is a deep and abiding support, for instance, for refugees. There is an abiding support for immigrants. You know, all the religious left activists that I spoke with, and that you know, there's there's any number of them, so I couldn't speak to them all. But all the ones I spoke with specifically mentioned immigration and immigration reform as a policy that they're hoping to push pretty early in Biden's um, presidency, something that they could get behind. They might even have different ideas of what a immigration reform bill could look like, but they all seem to be in agreement that that is an important priority. You also see a broad-based support for action on climate change. Um, that's you know kind of a unifying idea among many of these faith groups, particularly Hispanic Catholics, who often disproportionately compared to other faith communities will cite that as something that they are very concerned about and believe that the administration should take action on. You will see broad support for LGBTQ rights as well. Although again, it depends on who you're talking to in terms of which specific policy they might want promoted in that region of policy. And then I do think you are going to continue to see activism, not just on these major issues that we're talking about right now at the beginning of the Biden presidency, but also some of the ones that they think have gone undercovered. And for instance, that includes indigenous rights um, and the rights of Native Americans. Um, that, you know, people often forget the Standing Rock demonstrations were an explicitly religious act or a spiritual act. They, they called that camp in Standing Rock near where the construction was ready to happen a prayer camp, and they would begin the day with prayer. And so indigenous activists of, of multiple varieties, whether they're Native Hawaiian, Native Alaskan, um, or Native American, have often advocated for indigenous rights as an expression of their spirituality, right? So they, they don't want a pipeline built because not only do they think it could do environmental damage, but they think that that environmental damage would damage sacred land. And so um, you have seen a lot of overlap with other religious groups becoming deeply conversant with indigenous rights groups advocating with them and alongside them for their various causes. And so I think those are probably the broadest strokes off the top of my head, but it all kind of comes back to, I think the religious left, you will often hear the same critiques of the religious left as you will have of the left in general, which is that you have such diversity, ideological, theological, racial, gender, identity, et cetera, that it often can um, spur points of division. And that is true of any group of people that tries to advocate together. Sometimes coalition building is often very difficult. But one thing I have found to be interesting is that the religious left can often serve as a group of people who help that coalition stay together for the broader left. I've often seen members of the religious left go be sent in to help basically de-escalate tensions between different parts of the broader left, to help build bridges. Because for some of them, they've already been working on building those bridges for quite some time. The religious left is having their moment now. The last four years, the religious right had their moment, and they passed a lot of things that fit their agenda. What were some of those right-wing religious policies that were put in place under the Trump administration, and what might the Biden administration do to try to counter some of those? I appreciate this question because it actually exposes an odd thing about the Trump era which is that quite often you had seen him lifted up by religious right figures as this soldier for the religious right, this person who they would even concede might not be a perfect person, but God, some people within the religious right would argue that Trump was God's man, that he'd been put there to defend them, even if he wasn't necessarily embodying the, the life that they would preach that you would want to live. And, you know, that went to an extreme. You know, we heard people in, um, who, who launched the insurrection, they were 
waving Jesus flags um, and um, Christian flags and Jesus saves signs as they marched into the Capitol in support of Donald Trump. But what's weird is that Trump absolutely had a transactional relationship with religious right figures. But what that meant at the end of the day was one, he issued an executive order to combat what's called the Johnson Amendment, which is part of the US tax code that prohibits nonprofits more generally and churches in particular from making explicit political endorsements for candidates. And this was touted as this great achievement that he'd issued this executive order, you know, chipping away at this. And he argued that he had totally gotten rid of the Johnson Amendment. Well, the reality is that wasn't true. His executive order arguably made it more difficult to enforce the Johnson Amendment, but the reality is the Johnson Amendment already was not adequately enforced to begin with. It's one of the least enforced statutes in U.S. tax code. And so it was this rhetorical victory, but it had less of an effect than people might expect. The biggest success that he had for conservatives, from their perspective, was appointing three different Supreme Court justices to the U.S. Supreme Court and pushing as many judges as they could into the lower courts during that time period, which is less of a specific policy victory so much as it is at creating a system that makes it very difficult for Biden to pass you know, things he wants to pass. I mean, it's worth noting that you know, Biden passed this pause on deportation orders recently. And, and that actually you know, excited many religious left immigrants' rights activists. There's this thing called the New Sanctuary Movement where you know, like dozens of uh, undocumented immigrants at risk of deportation have been living in houses of worship, basically defying the federal authorities saying, if you're going to come get me, you got to come get me in a church or in a synagogue. And that would look bad for you. And so they just stay in those houses of worship until they get a, you know, ideally a stay of removal. But when that deportation pause ended, he actually had one of the people living in sanctuary in Illinois leave church and was able to return to their family. But within days, a Texas judge halted that deportation pause, as it were. So it paused the pause. And that person had to re-enter sanctuary once again. They have now returned back to that church out of fear that they will be deported at any moment. And so I point that out to say that that seems to me to be among the greatest policy victories that Trump was able to secure for members of the religious right. There's any other number of internal governmental regulations that will also take a long time to roll back that are just these you know, harder to find little regulatory shifts, but the biggest impact is probably gonna be on the judiciary, which is an odd thing when you think that you know, so many people on the religious right talked as if this was going to be a series of laws passed by Trump. But in reality, it seems to just be setting up the apparatus to stop further laws being passed by liberals and Democrats. So Biden offers hope, but it doesn't seem like, you know, he might be able to undo what Trump administration was able to do. Yeah, I think the Biden administration and Democrats in general, we're going to have their hands full when it comes to actually undoing all of Trumpism and what Trump has done. And there's just so much that they were able to achieve at the smaller granule levels, as well as, you know, just in the judiciary, that it takes longer to shift. I'll note that as one person described it to me, it's not all that dissimilar from when popes are elected, that one of the greatest legacies of a pope is usually how many cardinals they can appoint. Because who makes up the college of cardinals in the Catholic Church is who votes for the next pope. And so um, in some ways, the judiciary can serve a similar function in American government. So there's a lot that Democrats have to work on if they, if they really want to eradicate elements of Trumpism, as it were. Well, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Jack. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much to all of you for listening. I'm Danielle McLean. You can listen to the Biden Transition Podcast on bidentransitionpodcast.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Stay tuned for more episodes in the coming weeks for more expert insight into how Team Biden will tackle America's most pressing issues.